0: Welcome to Profit's Healthcare Transformers Podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. Hosted by Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Shrimp, and Jeff Gorgi. Transformation is one of those terms that has a lot of layers to it. Sometimes it's about innovation. Sometimes it's about shifting the way you do business. Sometimes it's to your overall operating model. And other times it's to a specific department or function. It's also about people, helping them navigate the discomfort that comes with change, but also motivating them to engage in the journey of transformation from the CEO to the newest employee. It's a journey, and that's why we created this podcast, to break down this multidimensional, dynamic topic of transformation, one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in?
1: Hello, my name is Lindsay Mosby, and I will be the host for today's Profit Healthcare Transformers podcast. And today, I am delighted to enjoy a conversation with Jamie Edwards, who is Chief Platform Officer for Startup Health. And Jamie, I'm actually going to leave my intro there and let you do the more elaborate part because you will do it far better justice than I, but suffice it to say, delighted to have you and thanks so much for spending time with us today.
2: Lindsay, so great to be here. And yeah, I am currently the the Chief Platform Officer at Startup Health. I joined Startup Health back in January after what was a, a great run uh, building a health equity solutions company called Cloudbreak Health. Cloudbreak was in 2000 plus hospitals across the country and the first company in our country to bring language interpreters to the point of care for limited English, proficient and deaf and hard of hearing patients. And then before that, I was the CEO of one of the leading multi-specialty hospital groups in the country called Emergent Medical Associates and uh, was on the team that helped build that company up seeing over a million patients a year at over 40 sites. And then prior to that, had a a career in investment banking and and private equity. So I've always been a very mission-driven, you know, serial social impact entrepreneur, but uh, have have had a great career in, in, in multiple different verticals and have happy to have landed in healthcare because you know what, Lindsay, healthcare needs some fixing. And so we are, yeah, we are here to deliver.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you. I actually would love to dig in just for a second or two on that. What was it that happened in that pivot from sort of the, financial services over into healthcare? Was there a moment
2: or? Yeah, look, I think I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always, I fell in love with the entrepreneurial process. When I was at Cornell as an undergrad, I took a course with a professor named Professor Ben Daniel, who taught me what the basic core tenets of entrepreneurship were. And, you know, it was take an idea in your head, make it real and then make it matter to people in a really positive way. And so I became enamored with that. And the the second I wrote my first business plan for that class, I was hooked. But I realized that I had some gaps if I was going to be an entrepreneur, and I grew up, you know, in the time of Enron. So I didn't. I never wanted a CFO to be able to pull the wool over my eyes and not understand that side of the business and have to be so reliant on someone else for that expertise. So I wanted to be able to call BS where I needed to call BS. Right. So I went into investment banking, which was just an enormously great training ground to see companies doing it right, companies doing it wrong, to learn how to tell company stories. And I think I've developed a little bit of like just a personal superpower and like corporate storytelling and how to position companies to raise capital and to, to help them hone in on their missions and, you know, really help them create value, not just for themselves and their shareholders, but brought more broadly from an impact perspective.
1: Wonderful. Feels good to go to work every day for something that feels like it matters, doesn't it?
2: That's right. And, you know, healthcare is one of these industries where there's just so much to fix, you know, $4.3 trillion of GDP and growing, and just so much opportunity to create what is a better experience. And I think we're in the early innings of what is a digital transformation in healthcare. You know, you look at a bunch of other industry verticals, whether it be automotive or finance or fitness and all those industries, retail have gone through these broad based fundamental changes, and healthcare really hasn't yet. COVID, helped accelerate some of that. There's been a little backing off from a COVID standpoint on that digital transformation since people have gotten, you know, we figured out how to treat pandemic, but still a ton of opportunity. And I think the industry is moving in the right direction.
1: I'd love to get you to just talk a little bit about startup health. Tell us what you guys are doing, what you see out there and what's lighting you up about being in this new spot.
2: Yeah, look, Startup Health is an incredible organization, and I feel honored to be a part of the team. It's a longstanding mission of the two founders, Steve Crine and Unity Stokes, to solve health's greatest challenges. And they've done that through what is a very unique moonshot model, you know, of 14 different moonshots covering a broad variety of topics from pandemic response to decreasing the cost of care to zero to the two most recent, which are Alzheimer's and type 1 diabetes. And so we believe that putting bold goals in front of entrepreneurs is the way to really solve the industry's issues startup health has become one of the largest if not the largest digital health ecosystem innovation ecosystem in the world with over you know 400 companies have passed through startup health's doors we currently have 300 plus companies active in the portfolio with a portfolio value worth over 27 billion and the innovation model and the way that we support these entrepreneurs you know, People might say, hey, you're a Y Combinator, but for digital health, I think that that is a fair representation, but I think we do more. We are not an up-and-out program that says you're on for 12 weeks, we're going to run you through, and you in a demo day, and then become an alumni. We are with our companies at every single stage of their development, and while we do focus on pre-seed, seed, Series A type of investments. We also invest in those companies and follow on rounds and are with them through their Series A all the way up through IPO or whatever their MA transaction might be upon exit. So a lot of value that we provide to these entrepreneurs, despite being a smaller part of the capital stack.
1: I'm sure they're all amazing in their own right. Are there any in particular right now that you feel are critical maybe because of what they do or because of
2: the time that they exist in? God, you know, Lindsay, hard to pick just one out of the few hundred. That hey, we- throw
1: a couple in there. It's fine.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it is an honor and a privilege to be able to work with these companies every day because while we're supposed to be helping them, you know, my favorite part is to have calls with our health transformers and do their coaching and mentoring because I leave every call feeling inspired. And I think if I were to Highlight a few businesses. You know, we have some unicorns in the portfolio like Devoted Health. We have companies like City Block Health, which is clearly carving out, you know, new ground, just doing some really incredible work. But it's some of the newer companies as well that are pretty exciting. We have a company called Next Life Sciences, and Next has a patent pending male contraception solution that could be fascinating and i think huge. We have other companies in the space, you know, that are just solving amazing problems problems for patients with parkinsons, for patients on the mental health side who are really looking to solve those challenges. I mean, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of these companies across these different moonshots. We have a bunch of amazing companies in women's health and femtech. And um, it's really interesting to see the evolution of these businesses across, you know, the various sectors and the impact that they're having or planning on having on really, again, solving healthcare's greatest challenges.
1: So with that, how about, let's talk a little bit about the trends or maybe the signals you see in the healthcare market towards innovation. For example, at Profit, we are talking a lot about sort of the, the data revolution, right? We're talking a lot about... The connected and empowered and patient, and you know, and how are we going to make that connected and empowered patient not just a small slice of the population, but let's make sure we get a lot more access and equity into that connectedness. We're talking a lot about value based care and the move to that. Maybe just tell me about some of the things that you are seeing that hopefully herald this this change that we all know needs to happen.
2: You know, Lindsay, I think it's such an interesting question because if I were to take a step back and look at the U.S. healthcare system and take a look at the, you know, the assets that we have there, the clay that we have to mold, you'd build a different system than what we have today if you were going to build it from scratch. It would be digital first with a digital front door, guiding patients to the in person care that they need. We would have much stronger incentives around value based care. And actually, instead of getting paid for what we do to patients, getting paid for what we do for patients. And I think a lot of that is just really common sense. So here we are, right, with this huge list of, of common sense ideas in front of us that we know could make healthcare better, but we're fighting a little bit of a system, you know, every, I like to say that every healthcare organization or every organization in general, every system has biology and that biology is set up to survive. And so hard to go to some of the companies in the system and say, Hey, we really need to cut your revenue in half and you should really close these divisions because we want to create the healthcare system of the future. Unfortunately, things don't, you know, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, right. Cause jobs are at stake. Things don't work that way from an innovation standpoint. And so we're forced into a much more incremental model. And when you take a look at even COVID and how it accelerated change in our system, it wasn't because a new technology came out, like holographic telemedicine visits or anything like that. We just navigated because we had to, because innovation needed to happen. So in this situation, we had a very, we had a pandemic and, you know, People needed to see patients in a different way. And so telemedicine was adopted and we used email, we used phone, we used video, trying to true technologies that have been out there for a long time. We just constructed them into a, a clinical workflow that helped us address the issue. But what we haven't done yet is really create the care model of the future. And I think that's going to be the big driver of innovation is when reimbursement and regulation finally catch up with the technologies that we have to really affect change at the point of care. I mean, you've got to always keep an eye on Amazon, right? The one medical acquisition there I think is pretty fascinating to look at. People looked at Amazon Care closing as a sign of retreat, but I don't think it was that at all. I think it was a, just a, a smart business move now that they have one medical and they're going to be transitioning things over to that platform. I mean, their acquisition of PillPack, right? Like, You take a look at what they're doing there and they're being very methodical, about how to build a great healthcare organization and realizing that maybe the Silicon Valley way of doing it isn't the right way to do it and that healthcare changes from the inside out. So instead, let's go out and buy the best players in their respective spaces and and construct a good solution there, but bring our know-how to making those platforms better. And I think that's going to be a pretty interesting model to look at. I think you've got some pretty amazing health systems across the country Providence, Atrium, where Raju Shrestha there doing great work from an innovation standpoint on leading the, these organizations into the future and really taking a broader-based innovation approach as opposed to just saying, hey, we're going to implement this X, Y, and Z technology, taking a real holistic approach to how we improve the patient and provider experience and make and build a healthcare system that we want for the future.
1: What are some of your, <laughs> your hacks or your tips and tricks? How are you helping the larger more risk-averse, and more entrenched players to kind of get brave and make these changes?
2: Yeah, look, I think situationally, once you expose people to the fact that a market is going through digital transformation and you either get on board or you get left behind, that tends to be a pretty great catalyst for people to be like, tell me more about this innovation thing. Oh, we can't continue to send faxes and CD-ROMs to patients and have that be a viable way of operation. I think those are the key things that help drive change is, you know, when the caboose starts catching up with the locomotive. And I think we're seeing that in healthcare today. So I think it's a question of taking a look at organizations like Kaiser or the V or the VA that own the patient end to end. And when you hear those organizations doing over 50 or 60% of their visits via telemedicine pre-COVID, right? that shows you that there's a better way to manage this process and we need to then take those models and get them into community care more broadly.
1: Along the same topic then, I was having a, a really great conversation with Elizabeth Teisberg, who you may know of. She and Michael Porter wrote the book Redefining Healthcare back in 2006 around value based care. She's an amazing woman, really, really cool. And she says something that struck me that I would love your two cents on. And we were talking about you know data and privacy and, and healthcare being this seemingly unique industry that has to be so closed and private, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that she said was patients are not telling her that they want privacy. They're telling her they want confidentiality. And I thought about the the distinction between those two and was just sort of like, oh my God, this feels like a, you know, kind of an aha moment. But what's your take on this whole, it's got to be private thing? And what do you think is true about that? And do you actually think that there are, you know, pieces of that that we might think about differently that would allow us to get past some of the
2: log jams? So I think it's really interesting. I think we had spoken before, Lindsay, about like lessons from other industries. So if you take a look at retail or you take a look at banking and finance, what you realize is that consumers have long been willing to trade privacy for convenience, Right or so this concept of you know i want to keep my information secure and i think people are getting now more comfortable also with the fact that if their information gets out nobody wants to be part of a data breach right that's let's set that tone and i don't think patients are all that stoked with having their patient data, you know, I, someone used a, a word the other day, I think it was the surveillance economy, which is like all this data that's out there that people are making money off of that's, you know, that owned by somebody else, but somehow they're the ones making money off of it, not the people who really, who, whose data it is. So whether that's, you know, credit scores or patient information, um, someone out there is monetizing it and it's not the patient, unfortunately. So I think what needs to happen is, the patient really needs to be in control of their data. Like I would love to see a system where doctors, like there's a national patient identifier, patients can control their information and give people access to it. So if you end up showing it up at hospital XYZ, it's like, great, here's my patient identifier, access my patient record. But at the end of the day, the patient is the one who is able to control it and they can opt in to have their data sold to somebody else or opt out. Like there are mechanisms in place to handle all of these types of things But in healthcare, data is treated like a gold asset and there are silos that are put between it so it doesn't flow freely where it needs to be. And instead, everyone who doesn't need to have it or who doesn't need to safeguard it has it in a way that allows them to make money off of it. Like interoperability is a great example. There is no reason why a, a patient data record shouldn't be completely portable. But today, it's hard for the patient to access their own record. It's hard for a patient to get a record from a GP to a specialist. You have to file all the, you know, it's like there's so many roadblocks, but that really should be pretty seamless in this day and age. So, in this world of cloud computing and storage and data transfer, like, why isn't that process a thing of the past? Like, why are we still reinforcing these old paradigms? Because that's the way we've done it.
1: Yeah. I think a lot about how in healthcare, we have operated as, you know, data is owned versus brokered data should in financial services, data is brokered, right? Like banks have figured out how to transfer money all over the planet and still make money, right? But there is a brokerage model. That I feel like healthcare has not quite gotten willing to, to get behind. And to your points, there's you know a number of companies out there who make plenty of money <laughs> off of people's data. But without that mind shift and then later quite literally infrastructural
2: shift. It's going to be tough for us to get where we want to get. It's going to be tough to let go of those CD-ROMs. And Lindsay, and you can't tell me it's like a technological challenge because it's not. The second that every patient has a national patient identifier and then you know Epic and Cerner and everyone's like, all right, we need to flow any person who has this you know, social security number or whatever up into the master record. Like, yes, there are some things you need to navigate there to make sure the data is accurate and being flowed appropriately and, and all those good things. But it's not like a huge technological challenge. It's an administrative challenge, but it's not a huge technological one.
1: I could not agree with you more and really appreciate you saying it. Another topic that you sort of, you touched on when we, in your opener, that um, I'd love to to dig into a little bit is the the issue of, of, of equity in health. And of all of the things that COVID sort of shone a really bright light on, the inequity of care and health was one of them. Can you talk a little bit about, and it can be from your own, you know, your own personal philosophy to startup health's philosophy to sort of what you think the healthcare
2: industry needs to be doing, but how do we get to a better place than where we are? Well, the world's becoming more diverse, not less. And we're seeing a shrinking middle class and a bunch of fundamental issues just here in the country in terms of people being able to access high quality care. And I'm a fundamental believer that Everyone, wherever you are in the United States, should be able to access high quality care. We had a saying at Cloudbreak that we wanted to provide you know, equitable access to inclusive care for diverse populations. And that allowed us really to take our mandate of just bringing language interpreters to the point of care and figuring out how to broaden it so that we could get specialists in where they needed to be seen in underserved communities over our platform and those types of things. Health equity is always a tough issue. And as we go through this digital transformation, I think one of the things that I've seen that's great is that 12 years ago when we were pounding at the table on health equity, like nobody was listening. And it just wasn't a strategic imperative. And now I think if you go to health systems across the country post-COVID, every single one of them is talking about health equity and the need to be able to service a broad swath of their population and solve access issues. And with digital transformation, one of the things that people have focused on is this concept of the digital divide. Well, what do you do as you start building a more digitally enabled healthcare system if not everybody has broadband, if not everybody has a smartphone? And those are real problems that need to get Solved, but people also are talking about artificial intelligence. And if you take what is an existing bias system and digitize it, are you just digitizing bias? And do you need to think about it a different way so that we don't make the same mistakes that we made in the offline world and the online world? It's a healthy discussion to have, one that I'm particularly passionate about, but I believe these problems can be solved by us not treating every patient like a data point or a statistic, but treating them like a story and a unique story at that. And if we can really kind of at the end of one, make these patients, give them that mass customized, a unique experience for them, then I think we'll be in the right place.
1: You know, this is one of those things where technology provides so much potential, right? And the unintended consequences of a great idea also applies, Right. So if I think about health equity and, and, your, and your point around bias, how are we helping guide healthcare executives, whether it's traditional players or new players, to be really aware of the fact that, you know, unless you look at this stuff specifically, you run the risk of, you know, getting an outcome that you didn't mean to get Like, are there operational things that we need to be doing? Are there, is it building new capacities into these organizations?
2: Yeah, look, innovation isn't a point in time, right? It's an iterative process. And I think we unfortunately get stuck in a process loop a lot of times because process is allows us to scale. So the whole reason you put process in place is so that you're not, you know, treating everybody in a unique fashion. And so you've got, an ability to move through this process and do it from a mass standpoint. So, you know, process is required, but we need to be able to change those processes and be flexible with, and create nimble organizations that can react to the environment around them. And you know, this concept of innovation being a continuum as opposed to a single point in time, I think is an important one because frequently we're like, okay, great, we're done with that. Let's move on to the next thing. And the answer is, well, well, no, it's not. You know, you set up a performance improvement committee and you continually try and make that process better and adjust to the market conditions that, are, that you're being faced with.
1: Do you think there's something to be said for that willingness to try and quote unquote fail and then go, eh, okay, I'm going to move to something else.
2: Do we need to be doing more of that in healthcare? by the way like the stakes are high in healthcare right failure in healthcare is lives being on the line that's our mentality and so that tends to be a blocker of innovation because you know no one wants to be that again data statistic where things went wrong but i think we need to embrace failure in healthcare a little bit more and you know we do in healthcare what what happens when we fail we do a root cause analysis so that process is actually a good process but unless we go from root cause then to innovation on the backside of it? Like finding the root cause and saying, here's where we failed is great. But if on the backside, you're not fixing the process, then what have we done? We've we've created a situation where, you know, there's nothing, you know, if you set up the chain of dominoes, well, now the domino falls, but there's nothing for it to hit to continue the innovation process. And that's really, those gaps are the gaps that we need to fix.
1: The other thing that I'd love your opinion on is in health, well, in any industry, but in healthcare and as our, culture moves away from a, I work somewhere for 20 years kind of set up to, I work somewhere to three to five kind of set up. Yep. Are you seeing that effect either negatively or positively innovation initiatives within healthcare? Because when somebody leaves the, the next person that comes in is like, eh, that's not my thing. I'm out. I'm not, I'm doing that. We're going to scuttle it. Do you see that happening? And if not,
2: why or why not maybe? Right. This falls into the realm of what I would call practitioner bias, right? Where, you know, what lawyer ever liked another lawyer's work and said, that guy did a great job for you? Or a doctor who talked to another doctor is like, yeah, I think he's got the diagnosis right. Or a CTO who came in is like, oh, this guy built a great stack. All I need to do is maintain it. Said by no practitioner ever, right? Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We all come in with our own luggage, with our own bias. And You know, that's definitely a challenge, but I think there's an exciting part of it too. When you are in an organization and taking like the 20 year view, like there's not an incentive to go in and like have your impact felt immediately. And so I think on the flip side, like you bring in fresh blood, and a lot of people find that exciting because it's no longer a stagnant environment. And so pros and cons, right, Lindsay, to the situation. But I think people taking more of like a three to five year perspective is like, look, I'm going to go in, I'm going to work my process, work the magic, and hopefully leave this place a better place than when I got here. As opposed to thinking like, this is the long term place where I'm going to land and therefore I am protected from having to do innovation and having to push the ball forward because I'm now a part of this dysfunctional family for better or for worse.
1: Yeah, right. Oh, I love that perspective. That's a great way to think about it. Well, maybe for our kind of, you know, closer, I'd love to get your take on what's coming. What's the future look like? What do you see out there that's making you feel good?
2: My crystal ball. Look, given where I sit in the startup health ecosystem and just in in venture capital, like I couldn't be more excited about seeing the fact that entrepreneurs are still stoked Still stoked about solving these problems that are in front of them, and the energy and the passion that they are bringing to do so. You know, again, I'm privileged to be able to like work with probably over a thousand entrepreneurs on an annual basis who really are incredibly mission driven. They're not starting companies because they think they can make money. They're starting companies because they see a problem that needs to get solved, and they want to be the ones to solve that problem. Like, have an impact. It's all very mission driven. And, you know, that excites me being a part of, you know, kind of these different companies that are bubbling up through the ether and seeing them make all of this progress. You know, you can't help but sleep better at night knowing that people are out there with this type of engagement in trying to make a better future, not just for themselves, but for others. So that part of this, I find very exciting. You know, you take a look at the you know, if you take a look at Startup Health Insights, you know I think there was over $44 billion of money last year put into investing in these businesses. While that number is down from the height of COVID, it is still 10x where it was five or six years ago. So there's going to be a ton more innovation, a ton more money funded into this space. We're currently not living through the best market on the face of the planet right now. But again, moment in time. And I think I can't help. And by the way, I'm biased. I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm optimistic to a core. But I remain optimistic about the future of, of healthcare with the entrepreneurs that I've been seeing come through Startup health doors and the hands that it's in.
1: Well, they are really, really lucky to have someone with the amount of energy and passion and clearly the depth of expertise
2: that you bring. So... I know they're thrilled to have you. And uh, I appreciate you saying that, Lindsay. If if we could do the same thing now for like, you know, the reimbursement market and for the regulatory market, we'd really be on to something.
1: Yeah, it, we'll get there. We're not giving <laughs> up. We'll get there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you.
2: The pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much for having what are important conversations that you're sharing uh, with people that matter.
0: Thanks for listening to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya and Asia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Shrimp, and Jeff Gorgi. If you like today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening.